The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, church. The passage this morning is from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. And you are welcome to follow along with me with the Bibles under the seats around you or on the screen up ahead. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit of Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as, he, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? This is the reading of God's word. So in the summer of 1932, little history for you guys this morning, um, because I'm a history buff and, well, not a buff, I say I, a little bit of a nerd. I don't know, maybe know that much, but I enjoy history uh, um, because there's a book I knew I wasn't going to read I, I, over the summer. So there's some books like I know I'm just not going to read, so I, I cheat. And I, if you listen to it on audiobook, can you say you read it? I don't really know how, so I can't say it. I don't know if I can say I read, but I read a, a big book about uh, World War II and uh, FDR over the summer. It was awesome. And then the summer of 1932, almost a quarter of Americans were out of work. They did not have jobs, almost a quarter, 20 to 23%, somewhere in that range did not have jobs in the summer of 1932. There were millions of people in cities around the country who were literally going hungry, did not know where their next meal was gonna come from, didn't have the money to buy it, and if they did, they often couldn't find food. There were lines waiting to get food. Meanwhile, there are thousands of farmers across the country who had literally had fields full of food ready to be harvested, but they could not afford to harvest the food in their fields. It was a bad situation. By the end of the year, almost half of the banks, think about this, like we, most of you guys in here, you're old enough now, you like we lived through the Great Recession. Uh, nearly half of the banks in the country shut down, closed their doors forever. And they didn't have like FDIC to protect them. Like they were, if, if your bank shut down, you were just, you lost your money. 
It was a bad state of affairs. And the Democrats, they nominated a guy named Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the governor of New York. Now, up until this point, it's kind of an interesting thing in American history. We see it's very different now, but up until this point in American history, you couldn't ever act like you wanted to be president. You had to act like people just chose you and you're like all surprised by the secretly in backdoor deals, you're making sure it happens, but you had to act like it's all news to you. And so what would happen is like the Republicans and the Democrats would get together at their convention and there'd be a lot of backdoor deals, though you acted like you didn't know it. You weren't even in the town, you were back home. And they would come to a, a deal and then they would nominate somebody and then the way it worked is like they would show up at your house a couple of weeks later, the representatives of the convention, and say, hey, guess what? We nominated you to be president. And you're supposed to act like, oh, me? I'm all surprised. Like, I, I never thought about being president before. This is all news to me. Though you'd put everything behind this. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt saw that the country was in a crisis, and he felt like he couldn't pretend that he didn't want to be president. He couldn't pretend that he knew, didn't know what was going on. And so what he did is when they nominated him in Chicago at the convention, he boarded an airplane, which is very risky at the time. Remember, this is 1932. Air travel was very rare. It was considered very risky. And he boarded an, air, boarded an airplane from Albany, New York, to fly to Chicago, somewhere in 1932. And he addressed the convention in person. And basically he said, hey, look, I, I think it's time to dispense. We're in such a terrible crisis. It's time to dispense of all the weird formalities that we have and we need to get to business. And he promised Americans a new deal. Months later, whenever he had won the election, he stood before the country for the inauguration. That's his famous speech where he stood up and he declared the only thing that we have to fear is what? Fear itself. And then over the next 100 days, unprecedented before and since, the president and Congress, the newly elected Congress, got together over the next 100 days, passed 15 pieces of major, like major, major legislation that changed the face of the country. Now, regardless of your stance on FDR, the New Deal, and Democrats and Republicans, what we have to understand here is that the nation was in a crisis and Franklin Delano Roosevelt saw that, that he needed to declare to the people, here is my plan, this is who I am, I'm ready to lead us and this is my plan to take us forward. And whenever he did, it changed the whole landscape of the country. It would be mired in uh, the, the, the depression for a while, but things started to, people started to feel more comfortable, like there was a plan, like there was somebody in charge who was taking them in direction. The president's campaign and his inauguration tells us about who the person is and what their plan is to get us from where we are to where we're going. When the candidate stands up before the convention and declares, this is who I am and this is where we're going, it's telling you who they are. It's telling them there's there is a plan, that there is a direction that he sees us or she sees us taking. So Luke has spent in this book, so far, we're in chapter four today, he spent chapter one, two, and three leading up to this moment. It's the big unveiling. In chapter one, he told us about uh, how the promise of John the Baptist and Jesus being born was told to Elizabeth and to Mary by angels. He tells us about how uh, the birth of Jesus occurred and who, to whom that was told. 
He tells us about the, a, little, a little bit of background, the more history than uh, the other gospels give about Jesus' childhood, a little bit of history. And then it tells us about John the Baptist's ministry in chapter three and how he was coming, proclaiming a message saying that he was preparing the way for the king to come. Just the way we mentioned last week, like before a king would come through an area, a, a force would come through before him and make sure that the road was safe and level and ready to go in front of him. They would spend weeks and months preparing for the king's arrival. That's what John the Baptist did. And now the stage is set. It's sort of like if you ever watched a political convention before, they spend days and everybody's talking about how great the candidate is. And then they have the big bio piece, right? Like a five, 10 minute bio piece talking about how this person came from nothing and they clawed their way up and they're this greatest person that ever, to ever live in America. And now they're ready to take us forward. And then the lights go dark and then the in the, st- in the stage, and the lights come on, and the person appears, and they give the speech. Like, that's where this is now in the story. Luke is ready to unveil who Jesus is and what he is about. He's been writing an orderly account. Luke has set up that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king who has come to set up the kingdom of God. He's the king who's come to make things right. That's been a thing that we've been talking about, that don't we all, I mean, this election year, don't we all wish there was somebody who could come and could make things right again? Don't we long for it? Don't we just somebody had the silver bullet to come and to make things right, to, to fix all the problems that we have as a country, as we have as a world, that we have personally? Don't you wish that you could just... Wouldn't you wish that you could just find the magic key that would fix all your problems at home? Don't you wish you could find the magic key that would make your husband or wife not drop their clothes on the floor or fix the problem with your bank account or fix the issue between you and your wife and you and your husband or you and your kids? Don't you wish there was a magic key that would answer the problem of why our different races can't get along? But don't you wish there was somebody could answer the problem of why are we always feuding and warring with each other all over the place? Don't you wish somebody could come and make things right? He's been setting up that Jesus is the one, the Messiah, the one that the Jews are waiting on, the king to to come to set up the kingdom that would make things right again. And now we're going to see Jesus unveiled. But it's not going to happen the way that the Jews thought it was going to happen. See, the Jews thought the king was going to come and he was going to come with a sword. They thought he was going to come back and find the, their country, the nation of Israel had been ravaged, been conquered by opposing armies and now was conquered by Rome and he was gonna come and he was gonna wield the sword and he was going to turn the tables on their enemies and put the people who had put them in subjection under subjection under him. That's how the, a king, a great king would come. But that's not the way that Jesus came at all. And the people who Luke is writing to knew this already. They knew the basic story about Jesus. He's writing to them an account, a history of Jesus' life, but they knew the basic story already. And so he's writing to his fellow skeptics because Luke is kind of a skeptic himself. That's why he's gathering all this information. It's the most orderly account of the gospels that we have, the four stories of Jesus' life, who he is and what he did. And Luke's writing to his fellow skeptics to show them who this leader is, who this great Messiah that this king had come. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter four. We're gonna see three things from this chapter today, hopefully. As the curtain is pulled back and we get to see and hear this leader finally for himself. 
In this passage, we're going to see how the king endured testing. We're going to see how the king declared his mission. And we're going to see that the king, how he just demonstrated his power. We're going to see how he endured testing the king, how the king declared his mission, and how the king demonstrated his power. First of all, how the king endured testing. Now, it's interesting that we read in Luke and the other Gospels that right after Jesus, so the end of chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, we actually have the genealogy of Jesus, the story of his life, or sorry, the story of his family and how he came to be. But right before that, he appears before John the Baptist, who was out declaring a, repent, a baptism for repentance of sins. We covered that last week. And, and Jesus appears before him, and he is baptized. And when John baptized him, baptizes him in the Jordan, and he comes back up, they hear a voice from heaven. Can you imagine this? They hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then they see Something descending from heaven that Luke tells us was the Holy Spirit in bodily form that descends like a dove upon him and rests upon him. And right after that happens, it says the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Right after that. I think it's interesting that right after he's declared by God to be the his son, that the Holy Spirit rests upon him, that he doesn't then send him out to do ministry. He sends him out into the wilderness. And you know why that is? It's because a king, a leader, a great leader, a great king, a great leader, has to be tested. A great leader has to be shown to, to be who he says he is. He has to face down his enemy and he has to face down himself before he can lead anybody else. So Jesus is led out into the wilderness and he says he fasts for 40 days. He doesn't eat or drink for 40 days, it says. And then the end of the fast, it says that, which would be, by the way, 40 days, I'm done, right? I mean, that's just like, if, if I make it that long, to me, like a, when, I, when I fast a meal, it's like, it feels like forever. Food never looks so good as when you're fasting. 40 days he's in the wilderness fasting, the end of it, the Satan, it says, appears to him, his great enemy. First of all, by the way, we in America, we live in our really kind of cush, comfortable lives, and we don't often think of there being actual Satan, an actual enemy. Well, there is an actual enemy of God, and you and I are caught in the crosshairs between he and God Almighty, and this great cosmic war that's going on, and we're the pawns in between. And C.S. Lewis said in a book, to, in a much more eloquent way, he said, he basically made out the case that the greatest attack to the enemy that the, the Satan can put upon human beings is for us to not even believe that he's real. It's not to take his side, it's for us to not even believe he's real and we're caught in the middle and we're kind of, don't even notice it. But Jesus faces his enemy down and his enemy takes him through three temptations. Now, it's interesting to see here as we're going to go over these three temptations really quickly because there's so much more here. We just have to kind of go over it really quickly today. But we're going to see two elements of each of these temptations. We're going to see the outward temptation and the inner pressure. St. Augustine said whenever he was talking about this passage, he said, uh, it's interesting that the devil doesn't make Jesus do anything in this situation, and just the way he can't make you and I do anything. He can present to us possibilities, but he can't make us do anything. 
It's the inner pressure that's even worse than the outward temptation that we have. It's that inner pressure to cave in when we do cave in and when we don't. We see that Jesus, because he's the king who's come to bring the kingdom of God to earth, to deliver God's people, which we're gonna come to, we're gonna see that all of his temptations have to do with power. Which, by the way, I think it's, very possible, a lot of commentaries I read said it's very possible that up to this point, Jesus, Jesus is always tempted. He's tempted throughout this 40 days. He's probably tempted through his whole life, but it's probably here in the wilderness when Hebrews says that there's no temptation that we face that, hasn't, that he hasn't faced himself. That's probably here in the wilderness that he faces those. These are the final temptations. First of all, we see Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, Verse, uh, verse one of chapter four, for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days. Verse three, and the devil said to him, you, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now that's an interesting temptation to him because if, it, if you've been paying attention, this fast is already over. There's nothing wrong. In fact, there's nothing wrong if he decided in the middle of the fast to eat food. There's nothing wrong with eating food. Bread is a great thing. The fast is over. He could break the fast and create food and eat it right there in the middle of the wilderness. There'd be nothing particularly wrong with that. But it's a temptation that Satan places to him. And I think this temptation has to do for Jesus with to exercise selfish power, to exercise power for his own self. Because this isn't about making food, which he would do later on for the people who were with him in a wilderness and didn't have food to eat, where he may turn the, 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 the bread and the fish into enough to feed thousands of people. This is just him alone. And the temptation for him is the son of God. What the Satan is saying is, if you are the son of God, prove that you're the son of God, prove that you're the, prove that you're the Messiah by turning this rock into a loaf of bread and eating this bread. I know you want this bread, Jesus. Turn this bread, turn this rock into bread and eat it for your own selfish gain. He's saying, use your power, this great power that you have as the son of God and prove it and fulfill your selfish desire that you have for yourself. And the reason this was a temptation for Jesus because as the leader he came, not for himself, but he came on a mission to redeem us for the glory of God not to glorify himself. The second temptation that he had, the second test, was a shortcut to power. And the devil took him up, verse five, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world at a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus facing here a temptation of a shortcut to power. He has been sent by God to arrest the rule of this world from Satan. He has come to set up his kingdom over the world. But what Satan is offering him here, is tempting him with, is he's saying there's a way to get there without suffering. There's a way to get there without the cross. If you'll just bow to me, Jesus, will, we won't even think about it afterwards. Just bow to me and worship me. It will all be over. I'll give you this, and you don't have to go through the incredible suffering that you have ahead of you that Jesus already knew about. 
He was tempted with a shortcut to power. That's when Jesus responded, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall you serve. Verse nine, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For now, through each temptation, Jesus responded by saying, after Satan tempts him, he says, it is written. It is written, first of all, it is written, man shall not, shall not live by bread alone. And then he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He said, I'm gonna stay faithful to what God has declared to be true and what God has declared to be real. But here, Satan turns it on him and Satan says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they shall bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So he's turning the word of God. He's saying, hey, God will protect you. Throw yourself off of here and prove to yourself, prove to the Father, prove to anybody who may be watching that you are the Son of God and that he will deliver you as he has has declared that he will. And Jesus answered, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to to the test. He was tempted at that moment by, to prove that he was the son of God by a display of his power. Jesus faces these temptations from Satan to turn his power for himself and he says every single, to every single time, it is written, it is written, it is said, I will stay true to the mission There was the outward temptation, but there was the inward pressure. It wouldn't be a temptation if there actually wasn't an inward pressure. If it, was, it wouldn't be a temptation if there was not an inward pressure upon his soul saying, maybe I should go this way. It would be easier. We see him at the very end, right, where before the, the, the troops are coming to take him to the cross, where he's praying alone. He's, he's so, uh, so in torment that he is pray, he, it's like he's sweating drops of blood in the garden. He says, God, if there's any way this could be taken away, let that way, let's go that way. I don't wanna have to go this route. There's a temptation inside of my inner pressure to find the easy way, just like there is with you and me in temptation. It's not the outward pressure, it's the inward pressure. But Jesus doesn't cave to the pressure like you and I cave because he's the good king who's been proven worthy to be king. He's been proven worthy to be king because we see in this instance that he endured great testing. 40 days he hasn't eaten. He has not, it says that he hasn't had any water. He hasn't had any food for 40 days. He's gotta be mentally, physically weak at this moment and he's faced with the greatest temptation that he could have as, the, as he knows he's the son of God. Think of the position that he's in. He's just been baptized by John. There's a voice from heaven which is God the Father saying, this is my son. He's like, so you gotta be thinking it in your, in your head like everybody should know I'm the son of God and yet like people are ignoring him we're gonna see going forward. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him. He has all the power that he needs to do whatever he needs to do and now he's being tempted by Satan at this point to, to show yourself to be the powerful one that you are and he endures great testing. Don't you want a leader who's proven himself to be strong, 
Not when just faced with outside pressure, but when faced with the inside pressure. Isn't that what we see leaders usually cave to? We see strong leaders. I, I love to read about history. We see strong leaders who face down enemies, face down dictators, who held seemingly whole countries together in the face of great crisis, who yet caved to an inner pressure because they, uh, because they wanted money the easy way or wanted uh, the hot fling with a girl or a guy in, the, in the, the easy way out. They wanted, they came to an inward pressure. Don't we want leaders who are able to stand not just to outward pressure, but to inward pressure? And there's only one in history and throughout the future history who has faced down one human, one leader, one king, who has faced down every outward pressure and every inward pressure upon his soul to cave in and take the easy way and has stood strong and faithful through it all. That's the kind of leader we want to follow. That's the kind of leader Jesus is. He's the good king who's been proven worthy because he's endured great testing and succeeded. But also, he's the good king who's been proven worthy because he knows. Not only is he strong and has withstood every single temptation, but he knows and he can sympathize with you and me in all of our weakness and all our temptation. There's not one temptation that you face now or faced yesterday or will face tomorrow. And think about, let's just be honest with yourself, we face some dark temptations, some dark thoughts, right? We may or may not act on them, but we entertain them longer than we should. And there's not one thing that you've been tempted with that you've either caved or haven't caved that he hasn't faced himself and he can sympathize with you and he knows what it's like He's strong, but yet he knows what it's like. The king endured great testing. Then we see the king declares his mission. Look at verse 16. And he came, so this is after he faces the testing. It says that he, verse 14, it says he returned the power of the spirit to Galilee and reports went out about him and he taught in synagogues. He went on a preaching tour around Galilee. And then he comes to Nazareth, which is a city that he's from, a little village that he's from there in Galilee uh, where he had been brought up, verse uh, 18. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So that, what would happen is that you would go to a, basically a local church service and they had their own kind of liturgy they followed. And at some point they would ask if you had a well-known rabbi or well-known teacher that was in the town that day or in the synagogue, they would ask you, hey, would you do the reading or would you teach us this morning? Like a guest teacher. So they recognized, hey, Jesus got this kind of reputation going on. Jesus, would you give the sermon this morning? So he reads and he opens to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 68, and then chapter 58. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is from Isaiah. He's talking about the Messiah who would come. And then it says he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down. That's where you would, you would sit to preach. And he sat down, and he began his sermon by saying, today, this has been fulfilled in your sight. This is like when the 
presidential candidate gets up before the convention and declares, hey, this is what I'm about, or stands up before the inauguration and says, hey, this is what we're going to do as a country. He's declaring his kingdom. He's declaring, this is what I'm about. And in this declaration, in this speech, in this sermon, it doesn't record the whole sermon, it just records how he, the summation of the sermon today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But we see that he declared that the kingdom of God had come. This part, you may or may not stand out to you, verse 19, when it says, oh, just before they says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and then proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of Jubilee. And what that was is that God had told the nation of Israel, hey, every 50 years, uh, you guys, uh, when you loan money or you have debt or uh, you sell your property to somebody else, every 50 years, on the 50th year, we're gonna call that the year of Jubilee. And in that year, all your debts will be forgiven you. And any, pro- any of your family's property that you've had to sell because uh, you didn't have enough money to do whatever, it goes back into your name at the end of those 50 years. Now, Israel hardly ever stood faithful to God long enough to actually get to the year of Jubilee, so it was almost sort of like a fable to most people whether this actually existed or not. And so when Isaiah prophesied it, and then when Jesus stands up before them and he says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, he's saying, Jubilee has come to you, your debts will be forgiven to you, all who are oppressed, all you who are blind, all of you who are captive, all of you who are poor, I'm coming to you to, to proclaim to you the year of Jubilee has come, all your debts are gonna be forgiven, all your property is gonna be returned to you. That was good news that he was proclaiming to them. He declares that the kingdom has come and that is good news. And that's the theme of this book. It's called the Gospel of Luke or the good news of Luke or the good news of Jesus as told by Luke. He declares that he was the king that we had been waiting on. He stood up. He said this this prophecy that existed for years and years and years, for hundreds of years now, by the time that he stands up before them, he's saying, today this is fulfilled in your sight. The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news, to proclaim liberty, to give sight back to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the Lord's favor, the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim to you the year of Jubilee has come that he was the king that we had been waiting on. He was the king. And then he says that the kingdom is good news, but it's only good news to the poor and the powerless. Did you notice that? He didn't stand up and say, hey, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, Recovery of sight the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed. And also to those of you who are kind of have it together, the rich, the healthy, the wealthy, the good people. He didn't come to declare, declare good news to those who have it all together. It's the fact that many of us think that we have it all together that keeps us from hearing the good news and keeps us from seeing Jesus the King who fully deserves all our devotion and all our worship. Do you hear that? He came for the powerless and the poor. He came to the oppressed and the weak. He came to those who are captive. 
Later on, Jesus would say, I didn't come for the healthy. The doctor comes to those who are sick. The problem with most of us or many of us in this room is that we far too much think that we have it together. We far too much think that, hey, God, if, if he would just come and give me kind of the missing parts of my life, then I would be okay. So I, I pray and ask God, hey, God, would you shore me up in these areas that I'm weak, but every, everywhere else in my life, I kind of have it together. And he said, no, I'm the king that's come with good news, but you won't ever know it's good news until you know that you are the poor until you know that you are the powerless, until you know that you are the captive. Jesus writes in Revelation, uh, he writes a letter back to one of the churches and he says, you think that you have it all together, you think that you are rich and healthy, but you don't know that you are poor, miserable, blind, and naked. He came for the poor and the powerless, and that's really the state of every human being. The truth is that we are all poor and we are all captive. None of us in this room, none of us in history, no matter how great a person looks like from the outside, nobody has it together. Everyone is a mess. Everyone has sinned against God and has that record against them, no matter how amazing their reputation may look or they may think it is. And every person has, is bound by things that they cannot seem to get out of. I was talking with a guy this morning. He was talking about how that his life at one point was like a, a train that was going the wrong direction and he knew it was going in the wrong direction and he just didn't have the wherewithal or the power to change it, to go in a different way. And that's the situation that we all find ourselves in. And as long as we think that we're not the poor, that we're not the oppressed, that we're not the captive, we will never hear the good news. And we'll never see Jesus as the king. And then he says, not only is, the, is the, he the king that we've been waiting on, is he the, that the kingdom is good news to the poor and powerless, but he says that the entire power of the Godhead was dedicated to this mission, to this mission of his kingdom. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Here's Jesus, the son of God. He's saying the spirit of God is upon me. Earlier, we, we see at, the, at his baptism, we hear, we see Jesus, the son of God, baptized. We hear the, the father from heaven saying, this is my son. And we see the Holy Spirit descend upon him. He's saying the whole, the whole power of the entire Trinity is right here at this moment. Dedicated to see the mission of God, the kingdom of God established. Then he declares that he is the good news, that he is the good king who came to restore and to redeem. All that's broken in your life, all that's broken in this world, he's the one that's come to restore it and to redeem it. And no hope for lasting restoration is found anywhere else than him. No hope for lasting redemption is found anywhere other than him. We see the king endure great testing. We see the king declare his mission. Then we see the king demonstrated his power. 
He didn't just come and declare like so many of our uh, <laughs> so many of our politicians do. Hey, there's going to be a chicken in every pot. Nobody's going to suffer anymore. Everybody's going to have a job. If you just elect me, all your problems are going to be solved. And they get elected and we find out, hey, they were a human too. And they didn't deliver on their promises. He didn't just come and declare, hey, I've come to declare good news to you, liberty to those who are captive, recovering of sight to the blind, instead of liberty to those who are oppressed. He came and he demonstrated his power. After he leaves Nazareth, which is a whole other cool story we just don't have time to get into. It says he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was, verse 31, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. This is quite a, kind of a crazy church service they have there. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And then in verse 38, and he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, that's Peter, before he got his name changed. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf and he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Verse 40, when the sun was setting, because it was the Sabbath day, they couldn't move around, but when the sun, when the sun set, then they could move around because it was the end of the Sabbath. All those who had come, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them and demons also came out of many crying you're the son of God but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ we see the king demonstrated his power that he had power over evil authority and we want a king a leader who has power over his enemies he demonstrates he has power over his enemies and not only did he have power over his enemies but it says that he had power to make whole he took those who were sick and he healed them but then we see that he didn't just have power over authority or power to make those who are broken whole, but he had the compassion to care. This wording is unusual in, ancient, in the ancient text of the time where it says that, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. He took the time to be with them. He laid his hands on each one, every single one, and prayed for them and healed them. Now it's interesting to me, as we finish up, that the people in Nazareth, the city that he grew up in, he finishes his sermon there and they get all riled up because he says that he's basically saying he's God. And they take him out and they try to kill him. And God delivers him in the middle of the, the, their attempt to try to kill him, to murder him. But in Capernaum, it says that he, they were astonished or amazed at what he did. The Nazarites heard it, and it said, actually it says that they were astonished, but they did not believe. They heard, they said, hey, basically, hey, perform your tricks that you did other places. We want to see these tricks that you're doing, these healings, these cool, cool miracles. Show us but in Capernaum, it says they were amazed. 
But the interesting thing is that they weren't just amazed at what he said or what he did. They were amazed at who he was. Because in verse 42, it says, and when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Please don't leave us, they were saying. That's because Jesus' message wasn't just about what the king would come and do. It was about who the king was. It was about the good king who came to actually get in the mud pit with us where we are. And yet is powerful enough and cares about us enough to make us whole again. But then I was thinking about this, and it's interesting because there's really a limit to this. Every single one of these people that they bring to Jesus that he heals, they can get sick again. Every single person he heals, they're going to face death. Every single person he casts the demon out of, it could happen again. They could face death themselves. They will face death, every single person. Every single person he heals and delivers, it's, it's awesome, it's amazing. He came to deliver. But it's like plugging holes in a raft when the raft is heading for the waterfall. How could he deliver on his promise to proclaim good news to the poor, to to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the covering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed? How could he deliver on that? He could deliver that on on, on those promises to them as this great leader because he knew his mission. He knew his mission wasn't just to come and declare his, that he had come to help and to come and to heal people, but he had come to take care of the great problem that we all had, that lies at the bottom of it all. That enmity and animosity that exists between us and God, that brokenness that's in ourselves that we can never seem to satisfy around us. He came to give himself for us. And that's how he could proclaim ultimate deliverance to the captives, liberty to those who are oppressed, to give wholeness to those who are broken and blind. It's because he would become captive and he would become oppressed He would take upon our sickness and our sin and our disease. He would take upon himself our brokenness so that we could be made whole again. We have a great leader who's endured great testing, who's declared his mission to bring good news to us, to set us at liberty. He's demonstrated his power, not in the fact or he demonstrated his power in the fact that he healed and set people free. But he demonstrated his power ultimately in laying his power down on the cross so that we could be made whole. That's a leader worth following and giving our lives to. And if you're here this morning and you have never given your life to him, I pray that that would be, today would be your day.
for that to happen. And as we get ready to prepare for a communion, I pray that we would, as believers, be reminded of how great a leader he was, that we're not just celebrating his broken body and blood, but that we're celebrating a leader who came and gave himself for us to make us whole again. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.